0: What the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. Did they see what's going on? I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on.
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pteitka.
2: I'm Mark Thiessen.
1: Welcome to our podcast.
2: What the hell is going on? on?
1: We need a ditty.
2: (laughs) We have a ditty. It's Donald Trump. I know.
1: (laughs) So, what are we talking about today?
2: We're talking about Donald Trump, cyber warrior.
1: (laughs) I knew you were going to put it that way. We're talking about
2: cyber wars.
1: We're talking about... Which Donald Trump is waging
2: (laughs) in an unprecedented fashion.
1: As are our enemies, the Iranians, the North Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese everybody does seem to be up in our business about uh, using the the cyber tools available. You think that Donald Trump is a cyber warrior. I'm a little less sure. So let's talk about this issue. Let's talk about
2: the facts. I mean, so after the Iranians shot down a U.S. drone a few months ago, President Trump was ready to launch a kinetic attack, a military attack on Iranian radar station. You guys
1: can't see this, but when Mark said, ready, I made air quotes.
2: (laughs) Well, he was ready to do it and then he pulled back. And we both agreed at the time that that was the right decision, uh, that uh, the sanctions are working, they're really hurting them. But what he did do, which got much less attention, is he launched a very devastating cyber attack against Iran that probably did more damage than the kinetic attack might have done. And then when the Iranians, a few months ago in June, when the Iranians were threatening uh, oil tanker traffic in the Persian Gulf, the Trump administration, again, New York Times reported, launched a massive cyber attack. And the Times reported, quote, a secret cyber attack against Iran in June wiped out critical database used by Iran's paramilitary arm to plot attacks against oil tankers and degraded Tehran's ability to covertly target shipping traffic in the Persian Gulf. So we've now had two major cyber attacks. So this image that Donald Trump is not responding militarily to the Iranians is actually wrong. He is responding. He's attacking them in the the cyber domain. And it's been quite effective.
1: Okay. So there's a big conversation to be had here about the sort of the philosophical differences between what a kinetic military attack does, what impact it has, and what deterrent power it has, and what a cyber uh, attack does. And that, I mean, I think that's a big challenge for us is that Donald Trump you know, maybe he's a cyber warrior. Maybe he isn't. But from my perspective, if you're going to be that guy, that cyber warrior who chooses this sort of silent but lethal approach, you've at least got to say something about it. You've got to say, hey, Iran, you may have noticed, you know, yeah. we didn't hit your main facility with, you know, a daisy cutter. On the other hand, you know, your phones aren't working anymore. You're not able to track our shipping. We are going to stand in the way of you doing. He doesn't do either of those things, which
2: I think begs a question about his intentions. Well, it's a it's a debatable point whether it's the right approach. I mean, so back in uh, during the Obama administration, President Obama took office. He came into office saying, "I'm going to end George Bush's wars. I don't want to start new wars in the Middle East." And and so what he did was. He embraced the drone technology, right? He carried on the drone war, and it was unprecedented in his use of drones to take out terrorists because it was a nice, clean, simple way to to keep his boot on the terrorist necks without engaging in combat. And we uh, learned the lesson. As a
1: side note, let me just say that had anyone else been doing that, it would have been called extrajudicial killing.
2: Of course, it would have. Yes. Well, the left criticized. Some people on the left did criticize. Yes, them, they did. I agree. So. It was obviously an insufficient tool because we saw the rise of ISIS, but he basically became a drone warrior. It was his way of dealing with the realities of the presidency without getting into new major conflicts. Donald Trump also ran. For office is a non interventionist who opposed Barack Obama and George Bush's wars and was not going to get us into new military conflicts. And while he came into office, this new cyber offensive cyber capability had pretty much just started to come online. And so he is using it, I think, in the same way that Barack Obama used drones as a way to respond to our adversaries in the Middle East without getting involved in. More kinetic and more controversial military operations because, precisely because you cannot see the effects. That doesn't uh, stand up. That doesn't stand
1: up the analysis because. Okay. First of all, we see that they take down our drone. We hit them with a cyber attack. Then they start interfering with shipping. We hit them with a cyber attack. So instead they escalate and they hit from their own territory, as best we understand right now, although that hasn't been fully declassified yet. But from their territory, they attack with drones and missiles, Saudi Aramco at two facilities. And so it, it seems to me that if we're talking about cyber as a deterrent, it didn't work too well. I'm
2: saying that this is how the president sees it. And just like Obama, the drone war was insufficient to protect us from the rise of ISIS. The cyber war is insufficient to protect us from, from Iranian aggression. So it's it's just an interesting analogy that the president is now using this tool as a way to avoid some of the difficult decisions that need to be made about confronting Iran.
1: Well, that's number one. I think you're totally right that he's using it as a way to avoid confronting different difficult decisions, much like Barack Obama preferred to kill terrorists rather than yes. interrogate them, something so. you've written about many Absolutely. times. Absolutely. Right. But as you say, it's not effective. And I think that the motivation- I don't motivation... know that it's not
2: effective. It's not, enti- it's not, well, it's not effective as a it deterrent. It certainly
1: hasn't been effective in
2: this well, instance. Well, it's, it's been effective in stopping their attacks on shipping. Um, it, we we have for, for
1: the for, for the moment, moment. Yes. for the moment it has been but you know they they escalated to something much worse this yes. attack on Saudi Arabia yes. really was much much worse and it wasn't just an attack on Saudi it really was an attack on global energy infrastructure With something an attack the United on the global economy. right something that the United States by the way has vowed for decades to defend and which Donald Trump basically decided, eh, you know what, let's not. Well, but we don't know
2: yet we don't, Well, what, uh, what he's decided I, or not.
1: Feel, decided. I feel like I know, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm, <laughs> and I'll, I'll be delighted to to admit that I'm wrong uh, if and when there's evidence to, to prove it. But let, let's just talk about the weaknesses of this cyber from a political standpoint. My suspicion is that one of the reasons Trump loves this is actually because he doesn't have to talk about it. Not because he wants to be silent but deadly, but because he doesn't want his base to know about it. That his base doesn't want him going to war with Iran. I get that. None of us you want to go what? to I war don't, with I, Iran. I think but, you're wrong on that.
2: And okay. I'll tell you why. Because when Donald Trump was in the phase of uh, threatening to fire in fire fury against North Korea, uh, his base was all for it. And there are there polls showing that a majority of Americans and more of Trump supporters would have, would have supported an attack on North Korea. Same thing with the attacks on Syria when he twice responded kinetically uh, to Syria's use of chemical weapons, his base supported it. The Republican conservative base is not isolationist. They are reluctant internationalists. And the problem we have right now is that we've always had Republican presidents who were leading and explaining the need for American engagement in the world. And today we have a Republican president who is basically echoing Obama's rhetoric about disengagement. And so I I don't think it's fair to say that his base would not support a military strike. Fair
1: enough. I mean, again, you know, that's only my suspicion and some of this is unknowable. But another another concern I have is this. One of the uh, benefits that sanctions afford us is that it creates a rift between the population and the government right in Iran but in Russia and in China and in North Korea too the the people look at it and they say why why the hell to use our vernacular are you doing these things that mean i can't you know buy TVs or i can't get sufficient you know i can't trade sufficiently or i can't have a bank food. account or i can't travel Cyber really doesn't afford us that because the Iranian government isn't going to advertise that it was subjected to a cyber attack. Donald Trump, now we know, isn't going to advertise that he's subjected to Iran to a cyber attack. And so that impact, that impact of separating the Iranian people from the Iranian government also isn't there. It's another downside to this. I get that we don't want to kill innocent people, but there are a lot of downsides to the effectiveness of cyber
2: well, there are all sorts of covert actions that Republican and Democratic presidents have taken, which are denied, um, including kinetic actions all the time. I mean, it's a, it's a policy decision as to whether or not you want to advertise it. And what you're saying, which I think may be right, is that the president should say, you know, go into the Oval Office and deliver a primetime address saying, I have launched a massive cyber attack on the Iranian capability to do X mm-hmm. um, in response to this attack on Saudi Arabia, and that if Iran threatens us with all-out war in response, if they follow through on that threat... Then the Connecticut response will be immediate and swift, and Iran should know. I mean, we'll
1: be cocked and ready and locked and loaded, as the president keeps <laughs> telling people in his Twitter. But it won't actually mean that somebody's pressing a button. It actually Don't means press we'll press the button do twice in
2: Syria. Uh, so let's let's not pretend that the president can't press the button when he's when he's convinced that it's the right. When thing Ivanka
1: to do. feels upset about what's happened on the ground.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Yes, you know, that's the problem. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. You can't you can't attack President Obama for drawing a red line and not enforcing it and then not give Trump credit for it. I did
1: give Trump Trump credit, but I don't think that he's done enough in this case or in the other. And I think that cyber has some real inherent limitations. Sometimes you've got to respond, yes, thoughtfully, yes, the correct way, yes, to minimize collateral damage. Okay. So, you know, per usual, you and I are having a lively discussion and we've forgotten (laughs) completely that we (laughs) we have a guest. So a few days ago, Mark and I had the opportunity to sit down with General Keith Alexander. Uh, General Alexander was the first commander of the newly created CyberCom named during the Obama administration by yeah. President Obama. He was the director of the National Security Agency appointed actually by George W Bush by Don Rumsfeld. So, uh, a bipartisan record of, of service under a series of presidents. He went to he went to West Point, then he got a master of science in business administration, he got a master of science in systems technology and electronic warfare, he got a degree in physics from the Naval Postgrad School, a master of science from the National Security Strategy from NDU. I mean, just like one piece of tech credentials after another. He's a really cool guy i was so happy that he was willing to take the time to talk and to us and we had a
2: fascinating discussion with him because what we talked we're talking you know we're talking about Donald Trump's cyber warrior but putting trump aside and putting presidents aside we now have an awesome power in our disposal that is new to the world which is this offensive cyber capability. And over the last 10 years, we've really stepped up the game in building that offensive cyber capability. And so President Trump came into office and he's using this cyber tool because this tool was presented to him because it exists now in a way that it didn't before. And we have and with this offensive cyber capability come all sorts of questions because we're getting low-level attacks all the time and we now have, this offensive capability where we can respond, where we can detect, because one of the big problems with cyber attacks is is the question of recognition. You know if somebody where'd it come from? Where'd it come from? Who shot us? We've um, gotten much better. at we've that. We've gotten much, but he tells us that we've gotten much, much better at that. And so we now have the the capability to recognize and we have the co- capability to retaliate, which are new uh, in this in the cyber world. And we have, according to him, the unparalleled, uh, capability in both of those areas. But I think the interesting question, which we get into with him a little, is this idea of deterrence. So during during the Cold War, this, the five or six decades in which we had this nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union, we developed a complex a system of deterrence, right? And we had declaratory policy, which said, if you do X, we'll do Y, or right. we we'll reserve the right to do Y. And these combined... And then Ronald Reagan came in and brought in the added capability of missile defense. Uh, so we now could even deny you the success of your... Or at least call into question your ability to successfully carry out the first strike. And right. so there was this complex web of deterrence, which succeeded in preventing the use of a weapon of mass destruction in the entire Cold War. We now face a world in which not just one superpower, but many powers have weapons of mass disruption, which could be just as destructive in many ways. We haven't yet faced a strategic attack with a cyber weapon that took out our power grid, that, that caused death uh, among civilians, that caused cities to go black, that caused our financial system to collapse. These are things that are actually possible. And so we're entering this new world that we don't know the consequences of and we still do not have a doctrine of deterrence. Uh, to allow us to prevent people from carrying out those kinds of attacks in the future,
1: and when we don't have a doctrine of deterrence, all that does is open the door. Yes, it's true we know who now. Now we know better who did it, but they don't know what the results are going to be when they do it, and that it, that really does open the door to a significant new danger for the United States.
2: Well, let's go and listen to General Alexander. We went over to his offices out in uh, in Maryland uh, where he's uh, running a company uh, that is actually building these cyber defenses that we need. So uh, we'll turn to General Alexander. General Alexander, thank you so much for being here with us. So let's start with some things that are in the news. Uh, There was an Iranian attack on Saudi Arabian oil facilities. The administration is saying it came from Iran. You are a national security expert, you're also a cyber expert. What are the well, first of all, assess what, what's happened and what are the response options that the president has, both kinetic and non-kinetic to, to
0: an attack like this. So first let's talk about what's going on in the region that leads up to this because this has been a act of war with cyber going on for the last several years, starting with Saudi Aramco in 2012, and it continues. Uh, Iran attacked Saudi Aramco with a destructive malware. Mm-hmm. And that destructive malware destroyed over 30,000 systems and shut Saudi Aramco down. So what has been going on, Iran has been systematically attacking the finance, energy, and government sectors of Kuwait, Bahrain, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. It goes all the way back to the 2010-11, sanctions are levied, uh, tensions increased. You get to a a potential decrease, but they never stop the action against the Gulf states. And this is where I think we have to look at this from a strategic level. And the strategic level is the Gulf is important, not as much to us because of our independence on oil now, but for the world because it joins several continents and because the energy that comes out of there is important to China. It's important to Europe. It's important to many countries. And disrupting that causes a huge problem for the world. And so how do you stop that? We've seen it Iran on Israel. We've seen it Iran on the other Gulf states. We've seen our issues with Iran. How do we get there? And what are the options? Now, I am i think the president said this right. We're not looking to have a war with Iran. But don't take that off the table. The threat of war, not just from us but from our allies, or strikes to help impose a more strict set of uh, sanctions and other things on Iran. I think what they've done against the oil tankers and other things, this is an increased set of tensions. If you lay it out on a, on a map, a campaign plan, you can see they're deliberate in what they're doing. And
2: it all predates Trump.
0: It all predates Trump. And now he's got this issue to, to work with. This is not a problem that the U.S. can solve unilaterally. This is not just the U.S. problem. I think what we have to do is bring in our allies and say, okay, how do we solve this problem? What's at risk? You can't let a war happen between the Gulf states and Iran. You can't have a war between Israel and Iran because this brings in the rest of the world. I think we underestimate the seriousness of this because we think, okay, we've been over there for so long, what what more could happen? Well, it could get a lot worse. And it could impact the global economy. And not not to forget that if there's a war, there's a lot of people involved. And so from my perspective, this attack on Saudi Aramco represents a significant change in what's been going on. And so it's a wake-up moment. Because so it's
2: escalated from a uh, from a cyber attack to kinetic. From a cyber
0: and little attacks to a major attack. Yeah, And I think... The world has to respond. The world. And from my perspective, you know, I I think what President Trump and Secretary Pompeo have put out there is right. Actually, it's right. I don't have inside knowledge of the proof, but I suspect that our intel agencies are really good in this area, and they're going to present the proof to Saudi Arabia. Then everybody will know who did it, when they did it, how they did it, and then the decision can be made, so what do we do about it? I think that's a political decision, it's not a military decision, it's a political decision. You've got all elements of national power to consider. And that's what I believe the nation will do.
1: So here's a question for you. Um, Of course, you're totally right, it is a, a political decision for the President of the United States in consultation, we hope, with the Congress um, and with our allies about how to respond to not an attack on Saudi Arabia, because that's not how we should think about it. This is an attack on global energy supplies and on global energy security. because, As you said, it impacts the Chinese, the Japanese, the Europeans, all of the countries to which Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and others export. Um, But when I think back, the Iranians have been testing us for quite a long time, you've outlined a series of, of cyber tests that they did, you know. But what was interesting, um, Mark and I had a uh, did a podcast with Jack Keane, and he told us that in the wake of the downing of that American drone uh, that happened not so long ago over Iran, that the president chose to respond using cyber,
2: with a pretty devastating cyber response.
1: Is cyber a tool that we can use interchangeably with military action?
0: I think it's a tool that can be used to complement military action, and in some cases, to send a message. I believe the choice that they made in not going physical is the correct choice. And the reason, imagine that we kill innocent people bombing the radar sites and other sites along the way. If innocent or semi-guilty people are killed, you now escalate. So you can send a message with cyber, have similar destructive results without killing people per se, if you're careful about how you employ it. I think that's that's a good strategy. Yeah. But in the wake of, of Stuxnet,
1: um, which I think is a, a, a was really probably one of the first very disruptive cyber operations that is widely known and understood. Haven't the Iranians put up, put up protections for themselves that diminish our capacity to really
0: send a strong message? So when we think about this, the issue is we are entering a phase where cyber is going to be used increasingly as an element of national power. When you think about that, what that really says is that we now have to think about our own defense and the issue of escalation in cyber going into and creating escalation in the physical arena. So from a military and a national perspective, set the defense, fix our defense, work with our allies start to defend in cyber, have the better capability. Just like we do in the physical arena, do it in cyber. So Danny mentioned the uh, the cyber
2: response to Iran's kinetic attack on our drone. Um, it's also the New York Times reported recently that in June, Trump launched a uh, – the Trump administration launched a cyber attack that crippled Iran's ability to target oil tankers. Um, they said a secret cyber attack against Iran in June wiped out a critical database used by Iran's paramilitary arm to plot attacks against oil tankers and degraded Iran's ability to covertly target shipping traffic in the Persian Gulf. Uh, so that's two major cyber attacks that are in the public domain that have happened. Here's a question. So when President Obama uh, ran for office, he campaigned as a non-interventionist, uh, but he had to deal with the terrorist problem. And so he embraced the drone war, right? He, uh, he this was a way to uh, keep the, keep the, our ter- boot on the terrorist necks without massive deployments of troops, right? President Trump also campaigned as a non-interventionist and doesn't want to get into big wars. And he seems to be increasingly is it relying on cyber as the weapon to do that. Is,
0: is Trump becoming a cyber warrior the way Obama became a drone warrior? I'm, I'm not sure I'd put it that way. Okay. I would say that cyber is becoming an element of national power in a very serious way that offers President Trump opportunities that President Obama did not have. And I think President Trump has been more willing to use cyber, vice kinetic. Uh, I've had discussions with President Trump on cyber, and they've been really good discussions. I think he was well-informed, he made great decisions, and he knew the topic. And from my perspective in those those meetings, and it was on the energy sector and others, it's how do we as a country start to defend this nation? I think he was forward-leaning on that. And in my own assessment, in the right way. So let's talk a
1: little bit about uh, about capabilities because it's not it's not like the cold war you know where you you had a sense uh, of what was going on behind the scenes between the United States and the Soviets this is a different kind of a of a silent war if you want to call it that in cyberspace and I want a lot to talk about your impressions of others' capabilities, and the Chinese, of course, and the Russians' interference in our elections are, are all topics we want to get to with you. But let's talk first about us. I don't feel like we're at the top of the heap, that we are the best of the best, as we are on the military side, although that even that's degrading now. But are we?
0: I believe we are.
1: Talk a little <clears throat> bit about it, You in, know, insofar as you can.
0: Yeah. So... First, if I were to just grade us, I think we have the best cyber capabilities, the best trained folks, the best disciplined folks in the world, period. And now I can't go into all the reasons I know that, Mm -hmm. but when I look at the team that's there and the team that's in place, these folks that our nation has is really good. Now, having said that, there are issues that we have in our nation for defending the country that are outside that scope of visibility that we've got to address. Like what? Um, How do you protect critical infrastructure? And the answer is, well, you want to protect it and stop the attack. You don't want to protect it after it's been attacked. So you want to stop the missiles from coming in. You want to stop the cyber bullets from coming in. You have to have some way of seeing all that. We need to evolve and field that technology to do that. And I believe we can do that. So if you were to go into the Middle East and talk to our allies, you would see that they're getting attacked every week, destructive attacks by Iran. It's going on and it's consistent. And then you see other exploitations going on at the same time. This is open warfare, and you said it earlier, that people don't talk about. We don't cover it. But if you talk to our well, allies, Cyber is the only domain you can't see. You can't see, and people don't want to say, yeah, that really hurt, right? So this was the issue with the disruptive attacks against Wall Street. You have two sets of issues, uh, and this is where we have to fix our approach to it. If you're being attacked, then the SEC would look at the finance sector and say, well, you're being attacked. You should have done something about it. My comment, this is a nation state. What if we brought in, you know, Uh, foreign government troops and attacked a bank. We wouldn't say to that, well, you should have done more. You should have had air defense. You should have had your own tanks. No, we built this country for the common defense. And that includes cyber. So I actually think that President Trump moving forward in this area is the right thing to do. We've got to set our posture to defend our country in cyber. Because people are going to use it, whether we like it or not. It's like... Pre-World War II, the aircraft carrier was seen as a reconnaissance, not a attack capability. But we quickly learned, oops, it's an attack capability. <laughs> right? And air,
1: yeah.
0: leading into World War I, everybody thought it was just for reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. And then we found out, whoa, it's also for warfare. Well, guess what? Cyber is in that same realm.
2: In every other domain, land, sea, and air, if the United States is attacked at sea, we don't limit ourselves to attacking at sea, responding at sea. We, we can respond on land, we can respond in any other domain uh, that's appropriate for the response. It's an interesting thing. What we're seeing is that uh, when Iran launches a kinetic attack on us, we have responded in the cyber domain. When is it appropriate to respond to a
0: cyber attack in one of the kinetic domains? So that would be a National Security Council decision. I think the essence of the arguments would be how impactful was it? Mm-hmm. So if it really hurt our country in a significant way, or killed people, or had some type of effects like that, that we should consider all elements of national power mm-hmm. and all elements of military power. I think what the, my experience in being in the principals and deputies, committees, and discussing these things is all of those are put on the table. But should we have some sort of declaratory policy saying to our adversaries
2: that we do not reserve – if you attack us in the cyber domain, we will not limit – we're not going necessarily going to attack kinetically, but we do not limit our response to just the cyber domain because it seems like there's this low-level war where we're being yeah. attacked all the time. So we're not deterring uh, in the way we should. If- how do we develop a deterrent structure in cyber to stop people from car- nation states from carrying out these attacks because they're worried that we won't just
0: attack in cyber, but we'll do something bigger? So we have said in the past that we reserve the right to attack uh, a cyber attack across all amounts of national power. Mm-hmm. So that's out there. The issue, as I see it, is not that we can't attack and take out whoever in cyber and physical. The issue is what's the impact on our nation? Mm. Where do we go? And we stand to lose a lot today, and we're not ready. We need to fix our defense, and we need to work with our allies. We need to prepare the nation for what is going to come. I believe we're going to see more destructive attacks. And increasingly, small nation-states and non-nation-state actors can have nation-state like effects in cyber. So when you think about that, we have to have a better defense. Imagine that we have a significant attack that disrupts the world's financial markets. We're now in a far different place. We have to respond in different ways than we would just with cyber. And having, having that on the table, part of it could have been prevented by having a better defense. So the issues that are at stake our, our companies are being expected to do things against nation-state actors that, in no other domain, would we have them do.
1: So you, you've been talking about deterrence, and you talked about you talked about the the appeal of cyber to adversaries, which I completely understand. We we see this all the time. But let's go back a little in time. The the big OPM hack when the Chinese went in and stole. I'm sure your mine marks, yep. our families, records, all of our personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management of the federal government. I feel like, let, let me put this as a citizen and not as a denizen of Washington or a public policy person, I, I feel like our response was nothing. I feel like we didn't, we didn't teach the Chinese any lesson, and that they have come back and done it again and again and again. Ditto with the fact that they were sitting in the bowels of Lockheed Martin looking for the plans for the F-35. We're not deterring. Uh, what do you say?
0: We're not deterring.
1: <laughs> <coughs> okay, and, but and that I bet- say it in a different way. Yeah. Uh,
0: the first thing, is it logical to believe that OPM could defend themselves against a Chinese attack on the military side?
1: no of course no. not
0: is it logical to believe that opm could defend themselves against an attack in the cyber side no okay so if not opm and all the government agencies the civilian who's protecting them? where's your shooters the shooters are at nsa and cyber command but they can't see what's going on so we haven't created a coherent defensive infrastructure.
1: But if you say that, you, I asked you before whether we were the best. And
0: well, so nobody has. So that's this explanation right. about, so you have to evolve the technology. A few years ago, there was no technology that could do what we just talked about. Right. Now we're creating technology to do that. We'll mm-hmm. call that an integrated defense, and we've got to push that quickly. What I really liked about our military is we train and test them to failure, that's what the National Training Center does. It brings a battalion and a brigade out there, and the world-class op four comes up and just smokes them like a cheap cigar, Yeah. right? And then the battalion commander comes in. He said, I thought we were the best. And we got hammered in 15 minutes. I used to watch this. It was great. Now do the same in cyber. How do we do that? We don't run those games. We don't test it. And oh, by the way, Mark brought out a good point. The objective of warfare, is not the military, it's the nation. It's our critical infrastructure, it's our will. And that will is encompassed in our energy sector, our finance sector, our industry. Our economy is our nation. And we have to defend that in a different way.
1: Let's talk about the capabilities of, our, uh, of the bad guys. Um, Russia, China, Iran, even North Korea, how worried should we be about those? Are they very capable?
0: Well, I think there's capabilities. Yes, they have that. Then there's intent. Why would they do that? Now, a lot of people say, you know, there's some level of ambiguity, anonymity in attacks. So they can say, it wasn't us. We're getting really good at finding out who it was. And I think they know that. So countries should be very concerned that if they attack us, we will respond. And we have the whole elements of national powers, Mark already asked. Now the issue is, given that, they have the same vulnerabilities. This gets you to the second part of the question. Which is the most technology-advanced country? Us, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. It's us. So you, you don't have to go far to figure that one out. And when you think about from the 1960s, putting a man on the moon, and all the technology that was created helped build today, and that is predominantly on this internet, computers, the ability to communicate, make decisions, and everything that we do. We have benefited from that greatly, but we haven't protected it. And we've got to get down with it. So let's go back to deterrence, because you've used the term several times, defending right uh,
2: against cyber attacks. Like we have to you know, defend o- LPM. L- L- we have to defend all these things. And- you know, to draw the analogy to nuclear deterrence during the Cold War. So Ronald Reagan had the innovation that we needed not just to have mutually assured destruction, but we needed to have ballistic missile defense so that we could call into question their ability to carry out and successfully attack us to begin with. And But in cyber, you know, General Cartwright about a decade ago said that we're spending about 90% of our effort on defense and only about 10% of our effort on offense. Is that still the case? What is the balance between offense and defense? And how does offense play into
0: our ability to deter? Because we're not deterring right now, it seems. I wouldn't specifically look at that balance. It's what do you need on the offense to be successful? Yeah. And are we building that offense? And again, I think the team that we have is world class. The training, the personnel, the leadership, probably best in the world, and the tools. Secretary Gates, and I'll paraphrase his comments to me, how do we defend the country? And the answer is it's we don't have defending the country in physical space under one domain and in the offense in a different, it's together, it's a joint, it's a combination, it's the government's responsibility. And get on with testing that such that we can answer the questions that you're trying to really get me to talk about, which is, How much offense do you need? And the answer is... And how much do we have? Well, can't talk about that. (laughs) Look look at the time.
1: (laughs) You can't can't bail. Uh, I've got one more question for you. So I want to ask you a really political question. We've been talking about sort of principles of national security, bad guys, good guys. Um, Let's talk about the business of washington which is politics the washington post and other newspapers have been reporting that the um that a whistleblower uh inside they didn't specify which agency um uh, went to the inspector general with a complaint about uh a com- reportedly a conversation that donald trump had with a foreign leader, we don't know any of this. You know, we're just we're relying on the Washington Post here. But there, were, the Inspector General did notify, or I guess one of this, uh, the IG notified Congress uh, in accordance with with U.S. law. Now, none of us know what happened, so we can sit here and speculate till we're blue in the face. That's not going to add any value. But I but I worry that if our intelligence community is has access to, for whatever reason, conversations that the president of the United States, be it Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or whoever it is, this is going to recur. Just How do you see this philosophically,
0: structurally? So I think the president has to have the flexibility to work with foreign leaders. And that should include his ability to talk openly on those areas that he feels he needs to talk to achieve objectives for the good of this country. Now, having said that, I have no insights on all this, but I would say that we don't want any president to be so hamstrung that they gotta look and say, oh, before I answer that question, uh, your majesty or Mr. President or your prime ministership, whatever's the right word, I gotta go check and see if it's classified. The answer is the president is the ultimate classification authority. Now, having said that, he should also be able to share what needs to be shared and we've done that in the past if you recall what was shared to the united nations at different times what we share we do that all the time so i think we need to give the president the flexibility i don't think we should be in a place where it has become so political that everybody throws everybody at everything you know the the Politics in Washington are as bad as they've ever been. We've got to come up with a way of getting people to work together, period, on both sides. Because what the American people really want is for our political leaders to solve the problems that face our nation. And I think we spend more time fighting than we do solving problems. So that's from from a military perspective, former military perspective. I think there's a lot that we could do, say, I got it, everybody's mad at everybody, everybody hates everybody, I got it. Uh, and politics have always been like that. But here's the issue that face our country. This one is really critical. This one could impact our economy and really hurt us. Go fix this one.
2: On, But on this particular incident, as a, as a follow-up, It sounds like in this particular case that the person may have done the right thing, which is instead of leaking it to the press, they went to the the IG and issued a complaint that there's a process being followed and this hasn't leaked – this hadn't leaked out, though now it is in the paper. Uh, But President Trump has had more conversations with foreign leaders leaked into the media than probably any president in in memory. How can a president function – when his inte- people within his intelligence community or people within his administration are leaking uh, information
0: to the media about his private conversations with foreign leaders? Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't have an answer for that. I would say that the way to solve it is find the leakers and hold them accountable, period. Uh, that's what we have to do. You know, my experience with folks like Edward Snowden, they shouldn't be treated as heroes. They're criminals and they're traitors and they should be held accountable. That should be flat. When we, in the press and elsewhere, make these folks look like heroes, we only incentivize this type of behavior. So one of the things that we can collectively do is to say this is wrong, this hurts our country. Since you brought up Snowden, um, he's got a book out. How much damage did he do? He did a lot of damage, and significant damage across not just NSA, but across our entire intelligence community, and there's a number of, of things that have been put out by CIA, NSA, and others on that damage. He should be held accountable. I like the fact that they're already suing him for the content. <laughs> I think that's great. They should sue him for that and for double it. Take away all the money he makes from the book and all the other money he's got too. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Thank
1: you so much for being so generous with your time and thank you for your service.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you.
2: Well that was a great interview with with General Alexander and look he's a he's a great American who is you know this whole cyber development of these cyber capabilities the NSA's work it's probably the most secret work that our government does and it's something that's done as you mentioned in the intro to this whole segment out of sight of the of the American people but so much is being done to protect us from this new domain because we really you know we traditionally we had four domains we had air sea uh, land and space And now there really is a fifth domain that is becoming actually, quite frankly, the most militarily contested domain out there. There's not everyday attacks happening in the air and and on the sea in the same way that there are in cyber.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think this is hard for people to to imagine. You know, when you you say to people, hey, you know, you've got these guys, you know, in your inbox who are trying to raise money with fake banking scams, or, you know, you inherited millions of dollars from this, uh, you know, former dictator. Nigerian Uh, prince. Yes, Nigerian (laughs) prince. I, I think people are used to that, but they think of cyber as a nuisance. And I only started to think about this when I understood that the Chinese were able to hack into the the headset of one of our Air Force pilots and change the visuals that he was getting. In other words, to to sub- replace the image of, for example, an Allied airplane. Mm-hmm with an enemy missile so that our, our soldiers or airmen would shoot at our own people. That's the kind of thing that cyber affords you. Think about the Boeing 737 MAX that everybody's been talking about, right? What was that a problem with? It was a computer programming software. problem. That's a software problem.
2: So if you... Someone could intentionally do that.
1: It, it, it is just right. People were actually using Wi-Fi networks on airplanes to try to hack into the pilot system. So, you know, these vulnerabilities are everywhere. They're not just your baby cam at home or your Google Home or your Amazon Alexa. They're absolutely everywhere and, and, and in all of our defenses. I wish I knew what we were doing. To defeat this, I wish I knew what capability, well, it's a better. Good thing what you don't I...
2: know because then the enemies would know, and yeah, it's thank better you. that none of us know because that's how. But we don't you think it. that <laughs> would but give it, confidence but also, but, to the American people? Of course it would. But it, well, it might be uh, useful for the president to give a speech on this at some point. But also, it's not just kin- you're talking about using cyber for kinetic effects, which is fascinating area of, military, right. of what's changing in our military that you could actually, as part of a kinetic attack, but it also can be used to cause massive economic destruction. I mean, imagine if somebody hacked into the, into the stock exchange and just moved one decimal point. I mean... Could it, they do that on my account? <laughs> depends on which way, right? Yeah. But I mean, imagine if like you woke up the next morning and because somebody hacked into the stock exchange and, and messed around with, with the decimal points, all of a sudden your net assets went down to zero or went down so that people would freak out. So, you know, there are there are ways to attack the country that don't even involve Kinetic military operations, right. but that can cause massive economic I mean, how much money would be lost just in the chaos that ensues for something like that? So, this, are, this is an area where we really have to. I mean, what was clear from the interview is that we do not have yet a deterrence doctrine uh, when it comes to cyber to prevent people from carrying out these attacks. General Donald talked a lot about how to defend against them. We talked a lot about how to counterattack or to our offensive capabilities, but we have not yet. As a country, come up with a deterrence doctrine for cyber, and that's a big, big strategic goal to ability. make them think twice. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And then the last, the last thing I think that really is of interest that we talked about that we should close on is this question of Edward Snowden. Sure. General Alexander, really even-keeled guy, just you know, grandfatherly, amiable, sweet guy. You mentioned that name, and man, <laughs> there's that guy from West Point that you see. Yep. He was really angry, and I think that this is, you know, I mean, Edward Snowden is a traitor.
2: He's a traitor, and he did immeasurable damage to our national security by what he released uh, into the world in in ways that most Americans can't understand because so much of it is so complicated but our enemies have gone through that stuff and mind it and they're taking their knowledge of our capabilities and developing counter capabilities to defend they're developing counter capabilities to attack us and go around our defenses it is so incredibly damaging and the fact the idea that that man is selling a book treating himself as a, as a as some sort of a hero he belongs behind bars
1: he does belong behind bars and when we talk about defense Deterrence.
2: And all the people who helped him, by the way. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm about to say. Right. And all these these pseudo journalists who helped him put this stuff up, they're criminals too, and they should be behind bars as well.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. And when we talk about deterrence, you know, the one thing you can say is, when someone is arrested as a spy, you know, Jonathan Pollard, Aldrich Ames, these people are social pariahs. They go to prison. It is amazing to me that these cyber traitors are somehow heroes. That's another area where we need deterrence. And I got to say, you know me, I've got lots of bad things to say about the Trump administration. In this case, I am 100% behind them in their effort to pursue Edward Snowden every possible way. That man should be behind bars.
2: I think that's a great place to stop. Danny, just praised the Trump administration, ladies and gentlemen. We have broken new ground in the podcast.
1: Yes, thank you so much for listening. Our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta,
2: and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellatai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C